Greetings and welcome to a special seasonal gift from Eastern Promise. This is a very special bonus from Eastern Promise to you. It's the best of the guests, sharing some of your favourite interviews, according to download figures, from the first year of Eastern Promise. And for your first choice, it's the interview that started it all. George Freeman, Member of Parliament for Mid-Norfolk and currently Minister for Science, Research and Innovation. When this interview was recorded way back in May of 2021, George wasn't currently in government, so it's focused on his constituency and his views on the capacity of Norfolk and the east of England to rise to the post-pandemic challenge. So here's my interview with George Freeman MP, available in its complete form for the first time. And let's leave further introductions to the man himself. Yeah, George Freeman, Member of Parliament for Mid-Norfolk. You're being a tiny bit modest there, George, because you've got quite a number of uh, former hats, current hats. Well, that's very kind. I mean, the first job and... The defining job really is being a member of Parliament for Mid-Norfolk and I, I take that really, really seriously. So everything I do really starts here in that covenant uh, with my electorate. So the other hats I'm wearing uh, right now, two projects. The Prime Minister's asked me to lead a task force for him on what the much debated and promised post-Brexit dividend would be in terms of growth. And so we've We've set up a task force. They wanted to call it the Regulatory Opportunities Task Force, which I spotted was called, would be called ROC. <laughs> so we've called it the Task Force on Innovation, Growth and Regulatory Reform, TIGAS, right, which excellent. captures the energy of the project. Of course. Um, we've just submitted um, a major report, which we can talk about if that's of interest. That's about... Um, well, I, what I've tried to do is set out a whole new regulatory framework for the UK, rejecting the EU's precautionary principle and embracing a UK proportionality principle uh, rooted in English common law and in the traditions of, of our legal system, not the European one. But more importantly, setting out an ambition for the UK to lead in the regulation of new industries. So, I mean, there's a little bit of bonfire red tape, but it's mainly saying, come on, if we laid the regulations, led the world in nutraceuticals, functional foods, smart grid, hydrogen, automotive vehicles, we would become a world leader. Uh, and the other project I'm running at the moment is an international commission looking at the uh, post-COVID health economics and how the crisis has really revealed that advanced economies across the world have neglected their health economics and rather lazily assume that getting wealthier as an economy makes you healthier. Uh, so those are the two big projects I'm running at the moment. Um, other hats I've been lucky enough to wear. After being elected in 2010, I was uh, chair of the all-party group for agricultural science and technology. I used to sit on the board of the NRP investment fund, the ICINI fund. And before being an MP, I was um, on the board of Elsom Seeds, which is Britain's last family-owned seeds company. Mm -hmm. Then I was minister for life science, uh, first ever holder of that position. It was a new role David Cameron created for me after my evangelizing about the life science sector. Uh, and then uh, Theresa May took me to number 10 as chair of her policy board. And then Boris Johnson brought me back into government as Minister of State at the DFT for decarbonisation and digitalisation of transport. 
uh, and now I'm doing these two projects. And you'll notice from that that there's a common theme, which is that um, if we really want to get out of debt, which we needed to do after the crash, and now we really need to do after COVID, and if we really want to create the prosperity and the opportunity for people, then uh, we're going to have to quite dramatically raise our rate of growth. And the, the traditional way in London of raising the rate of growth is to have a boom in the city, a boom in retail, a boom in house building. And I'm arguing that if you really want to grow sustainably, we need a slightly different model of growth. We need to be a global hub for the industries of tomorrow. And I think that's very exciting for Norfolk as well, because here in East Anglia, down the Cambridge Norwich corridor, if you're going to be, have a global ambition in food, medicine, energy, digital, then no better region than the UK, uh, than in the UK than the East. So I think it's good for Norfolk as well as good mm. for the UK. I mean, you bring me really neatly onto my what was going to be my first question. Um, a lot of people are saying increasingly, I find on the media, that uh, with the success of the vaccine rollout, which is an incredible success, um, that we're all talking about a return to normality, if not now, then in the not too distant future. You've, I think you've, you've alluded to this already, and I've seen a lot of postings on LinkedIn and you've done about this. To what extent is this really a time for a pause and a think? I mean, you, you kind of already answered this question mm. um, about the fundamental questions about what kind of society we want to build. Uh, to what extent is this a clean sheet of paper moment and, and how much is that recognised back down south in, the, uh, in, uh, in government? Great question uh, in two parts. Firstly, uh, I really do deeply believe it's a, a reset moment. Um, much more importantly, it's not just me. I think um, the public want us to make this a reset moment. And there are lots of important reasons why. And starting at the grassroots, I think a lot of people this last year, we've all been forced to just take our foot off the pedal and reflect a bit and be um, rush around much less and enjoy the birdsong more and enjoy the basics of life more and neighborlyhood, neighborliness and neighborhood. And I think there is a very distinct sense notwithstanding the fact that of course everyone now wants to get out and meet people and go to the pub quite rightly but i do detect a lot of people have said you know i don't want to go back to that frantic world of being a slave to commuting and congestion and rushing around you know i was quite efficient working from home so i, I think there's a big shift in public opinion secondly um you know in one year we've incurred about a trillion pounds of debt and that is a really serious challenge we're going to have to do something different to make sure that the next generation aren't saddled with that debt. So it's going to require a new economics, uh, which is an exciting opportunity. Thirdly, um, it's been a wake-up call that we need um, to take health a bit more seriously. And what I mean by that is really that globally in the last few decades, we've sort of assumed that public health is something you worry about in Africa. Um, developing economies have to rid themselves of the curse of malaria and cholera. And once you're through that and prosperous, like we are, you don't really need to worry about infectious diseases. Well, guess what? We've just discovered, of course, this isn't the first pandemic. It's not a one in a hundred year event. This is the 10th global pandemic in the last 20 years. We've had Ebola, Zika, SARS, and many others that we haven't had to worry about here. So from a health point of view, this is a real wake up call. And that's what my the commission I've set up internationally with William Hague and John Bell and and others around the world is looking at. 
Uh, and then if those weren't enough of a reason, there's a fourth, which is cleaner growth, your climate change. And everybody now, uh, pretty much everybody um, accepts that climate change is happening fast and it's an emergency. There are some debates about how best to prevent it, but I don't think anyone seriously doubts that we have to mobilise. And cleaner growth is going to mean less, you know, f uh, less use of uh, fossil fuels, so clean energy, less commuting by car. Um, and here's the thing, healthier growth and cleaner growth are two sides of pretty much the same coin. I mean, weirdly, having been Minister for Health and Minister for Decarbonisation of Transport, I thought they'd be very different portfolios. They're not, they're very similar. And, you know, getting people out of their cars is good for health. Um, uh, getting people to walk a bit more each day, getting pe so, so many of these things are the same. So I think there is a genuine sense from Washington to Wuhan that we've got to make this a, a real wake-up call for healthier and cleaner growth. And if we grip it properly, I think it could be an exciting moment. And we owe it to all those poor people who've lost their lives and the tragedy of those who've lost loved ones, I think, to make it a, a, you know, a catalyst for something better. You've talked um, as well about uh, an innovation-based recovery. You've gone into that a, a, a bit. Could you expand on that? And I'm particularly interested in what tools we have in this region to really sort of push that forward. The clean tech and everything that's going out on the, the Sunrise Coast. Mm. So what, what, what yeah. tools do you think we have and how, we can, how do you think we can rise to the challenge? Yes. Um, well, uh, two parts to that. Firstly, what do I mean by innovation nation and science superpower? And they're phrases I've used a lot. They're easy phrases. But there is a serious point, which is that um, what I'm trying to suggest is that Britain, our economic model of growth, which really since, uh, since Mrs. T in the 80s has been um, about uh, retail, consumer spending, service economy, the city as a global hub of financial services. Um, uh, that's really the economy that we've, that we've grown and being a gateway for financial services and all sorts of professional services into Europe. And I think the combination of Brexit and COVID and the sort of pace of global technology means that we, we're going to have to think a bit about how Britain makes its way in the world. And... So I think that I think there is a real opportunity uh, for us. If you if you if you think about Britain in the way that uh, you know, like a small company, and I had a background, as you know, in starting small companies, and you were always having to ask the question: We're a small company that wants to be a great company in a global economy. What's our USP? What's our unique selling proposition? Where are we strong? And if you looked at the globe and you looked at Britain in that context, you'd say, as the world needs to go through agricultural industrial revolutions in the next 30 years that we've, we've led over 300. We've got to nearly double world food production by 2050 on the same land area with half as much water and energy, for example. We've got to rapidly help the developing world get through the diseases that held us back. We've got to help them generate clean energy. These are phenomenal markets. And to me, there's a huge opportunity for the UK as leaders in science and we, I mean, genuine leaders uh, to be to build an economy where we're incubating the new technologies, growing the companies, not selling them straight to America, financing them in London, giving the city something better than a derivative to invest in, uh, growing the companies here, exporting the technology globally, aligning our aid and our trade and using our trading freedom to say to countries, 
look, it's a very low tariff for the UK. It's zero if you're producing in the best possible way, which we can help you do. And I think we could become a real powerhouse for that. Now, here in the East, second part of your question, that's incredibly exciting because not 10 miles from where we're sitting, we've got the Norwich Research Park, 23,000 scientists, world-leading centres, the John Innes Centre, the Sainsbury Laboratory, the Genome Centre, very excitingly, in food, medicine and energy, and particularly where those three come together. So the relationship between food and medicine, nutraceuticals, functional foods, very exciting, from uh, cancer-preventing broccoli to cardiovascular-improving carrots, where agriculture and energy meet, very interesting area. I recently sat in a lotus at Hethel, made, powered by Formula One biofuel, made by genetically modified bugs breaking down agricultural waste. I mean, that's life sciences working for us. So I think this model of growth would be brilliant for the UK uh, and brilliant for the East and particularly brilliant for rural East Anglia, which I think for decades has been treated really by London, if at all, as a sort of backwater for commuters and farmers and um now for house dumping. But actually, we've got a vision here of an innovation region where lots of little businesses trading between the great centres of science, Martlesham, Ipswich, Norwich and Cambridge. We could really build a very innovative local economy with small businesses. And that's really exciting, I think, for the villages and for the culture and for the way of life, as well as for the for the economic opportunity. It is a really exciting moment because we have that quality of life USP. And what I'm sure you'll feel the same, but what saddens me is that people look at a success in Cambridge and think, well, for mm. Cambridge to be successful, the Norfolk and Suffolk have somehow lost. And that's not true at all, is it? No, you're dead right. Um, and having had a career in Cambridge starting companies, um, there's a couple of observations on that. Firstly, I mean, Cambridge has become the most dysfunctional car park at rush hour, visible from space. Uh, I used to live in a village called Little Shelford, two miles from Cambridge. And one day, not long after we'd moved there, it took me nearly two hours to drive three miles. Mm. And I fortunately have a fold-up bicycle in the back of my car. I pulled over and cycled. Well, you know, that there's a huge lesson in there. Cambridge can't just keep growing like that. It'll become just a huge car park, and it's going to have to connect better. And so that's why I'm so passionate about the Cambridge Norwich Railway. If we put Attleborough and Wyndham and Thetford and you know, 40 minutes, 30 minutes reliably from, from Cambridge. You'd ease the pressure in Cambridge and you'd spread the opportunity out. Uh, so yeah, I completely agree. I think the idea that Cambridge is our enemy is ridiculous. We ought to be thinking about the whole of East Anglia, basically from Shanghai, Singapore to San Diego. People look at a map and I'm afraid they don't see Attleborough or Wyndham. They see London, Cambridge, and a big area around it. And I would be marketing this as um, the garden of, you know, the, the science park of Europe, the global science park, Cambridge and its hinterland. In its 2021 survey of CEOs, uh, PwC found that uh, the majority uh, by far were planning for what they termed a no regrets recovery. And that was the decisions that were in their direct control, take them. The things that they could invest in without regret, do it. What is that? What does that look like to you from an East Anglian perspective? What, in terms of the councils, in terms of the businesses, what are the decisions they have to take now without regret? That's a brilliant question. And um, actually, I think in, in London, the government and the Prime Minister is, is being very ambitious 
uh, and rightly, I think, about making this a reset moment. And that raises the bar for us here in the East. So it's a brilliant question, genuinely. Um, look, I think the big no regret things we need to commit to are uh, this this idea that East Anglia um, has its own economic destiny and our own economic opportunity, which isn't just servicing London. Uh, it's actually here in the East. It's in at a science level, combining our food science, our medical science, and our energy science, converting this great offshore uh, energy infrastructure. You know, we're about to be, as the Prime Minister described it, the Saudi Arabia of wind energy. And yet we've still got in rural East Anglia, which is host to all this, large areas where we haven't got enough energy. So creating a really smart grid, I think, is one of the things. Uh, a digital grid so that the whole of East Anglia has got really good 4G coverage is vital if you're going to unlock this. I think those are fundamentals. And then I think there's something about going with the grain of um, public opinion after COVID, I think. I think more people want to be able to work, to interact, to commute less, to go to the office once or twice a week. I mean, not to be cut off but not to have to be a slave to get there by 8.45 or 9.30. So there's a scope here for family, more family-friendly working hours. I think a lot of employers have realised we can, we can trust our employees. You know, you don't have to say if you're, you have to be here from 9 till 5. So I think there's an opportunity here in the East for us to grip that vision of a more decentralised, localised, entrepreneurial, smart economy and really commit to it. And not just in terms of big infrastructure that the government happens to have some money for on the coast, but to really commit to it so that at the school gates across East Anglia, everyone feels like they're on a path to net zero. And it's a positive, exciting opportunity to be healthier yourself, cycle more, walk more, spend a bit more time with your children, work closer to home and be more productive and work in a more exciting economy. And I think... Only the East can do that for ourselves. No one in London goes to bed at night with a vision for East Anglia, I've discovered, mm. in government. And that's up to us. Since, you've been elected, since you were elected to Parliament in 2010, you, I know, have been involved in lobbying for investment in the region, A11 duelling. You mentioned uh, the Norwich-Cambridge Rail link. In terms of how that's received... In specific departments, you've also been a minister, and in agencies and in DP, uh, non-departmental public bodies, uh, the general quango hinterland. You've got other MPs lobbying for their regions and their counties at the same time. How would you, as a sort of a performance review, if you like, how would you rate our effectiveness as a region, collectively and in Westminster, at lobbying um, for that investment? Uh, great question. So I think after 2010, um, when certainly here in Norfolk, uh, but also Suffolk to some extent and Cambridgeshire less, but certainly here in Norfolk, there was just, there happened to be quite a big new team of us. And in the coalition, we, we worked very hard as a team, Team Norfolk. We were the first county to send sort of all nine MPs in to see uh, the then uh, Chief Secretary to the Treasury. And I remember him saying, crikey, when nine MPs come in from one county within three weeks with a vision of what they want, it's pretty impressive. So I think we did quite well in that first period. We got the A11 dueled. We got the A47 commitment. We'll come back to the slow delivery later. 
Um, so I think, you know, tick, I think we did quite well. Then I think um, w sort of what happens is people get appointed ministers uh, and then you're really busy immersed in government. Uh, you're still doing your job as a constituency MP, but perhaps that spare bandwidth time you had in Parliament to be driving campaigns is now dev devoted to being inside government. Then we had Brexit and all the disruption of that. And actually, I think there's now a moment where we need to, we need to do it again. Uh, and I think that's really important. And I, I sense that there's a common um, commitment to that. The other day, I, for example, I chaired a call on the Cambridge Norwich Railway with 15 MPs from three counties, mm. with the Secretary of State for Transport and the Rail Minister. Well, that, as you know, you know that, uh, uh, that tells you something, that, that people are really working together. And I think partly because we know that we're going to have to fight at the moment or else the money will all go to the red wall seats in the north. Mm. And I think that's creating a sense that we, you know, we, we're going to have to really fight again. And the last point, I think, in London, there is a real danger that from Whitehall... They look out to East Anglia and they can't really see much, actually, but they can see Cambridge, which they see as highly prosperous. And they think basically East Anglia is the housing hinterland for Cambridge. They don't really see yet properly the Norwich Research Park, Martlesham, uh, Hethel, the, the uh, A11 Industrial Corridor. They don't see the opportunity. And I think... We're getting there, but we've got further to go to change perceptions so that people think of East Anglia as the new California. Do you think that um, organisations in, in this region actually make enough use of MPs as a resource? Because I've had conversations um, post being working in a, in a member's office where I've said, you are going to talk to the MPs, aren't you? Because, And, and perhaps you can just speak to... Uh, Parliament can seem quite arcane sometimes, but if you want to talk about how votes work and what an opportunity they provide in terms of getting the ear of a minister, that might be a good place to start with that question. Mm. Yeah, look, I think um, the big challenge probably is that in the end, um, people tend, we all do it, we tend to work to and for and through the organisations that employ us. And so... Um, the danger for a place like East Anglia or like Norfolk or like Wyndham or you know, whatever scale, but the danger for a place is that its voice gets a bit lost because government isn't structured really by places. It's structured by departmental silos and delivery quangos. And, you know, that's true across the board. In healthcare in Norfolk, I can't help observing that we've got 900,000 people whose healthcare needs are pretty predictable by and large, uh, thank goodness. And yet we have, you know, we all need a GP, a local medical centre to try and avoid going to hospital when we do make sure it's of the best standards. And if we're elderly, we need really good social care. And in Norfolk, we have, you know, five clinical commissioning groups, a mental health trust, an ambulance trust, a community health trust, an integrated care system delivery board. The county council does social care. I mean, it's about 12 organisations, five of which have been in special measures. And, you know, it's not a very efficient way to deliver integrated health care. And in some ways, government 
is a big part of the problem. And, and I don't mean party political point about just government machine yeah. is the problem. And I think what often happens is people use the MPs to lobby for their particular point. And that's understandable. And a lot of that is good work. But what I'm always keen for us to do is come together as place-based representatives with a bigger message to government, which is, look, rather than have 27 different quangos, could we have a more joined up vision for the East? And if you haven't got one, we have. Mm. And give us a bit more freedom to deliver it. And, you know, you asked about no regret decisions. I passionately believe that East Anglia could do with a mayor. <laughs> and I, I would like us to have a mayor for Cambridge to Suffolk, Norfolk. A mayor who's got the power to go to the Middle East and raise two or three billion pound infrastructure bond to build a new town and a piece of land somewhere in the middle of the region that no one cares about. Mm. has not got any agricultural value on the railway line. I could take you there. Yeah. And we could, you know, develop the railway stations into little business hubs. A, a mayor with the powers to do what I think people desperately want and they're expecting government to do it. And the government machine isn't well set up to do that local leadership. And the local enterprise partnership, I think, is good people, but it's become really more of a sort of delivery arm for government grants rather than a sort of really entrepreneurial local enterprise partnership. And I, I think the East needs, you know, we're home to some amazing businesses and entrepreneurs and people with vision and leadership, but we haven't really got a, a body through which that leadership can express itself. And I, so I do think we shouldn't just have metro mayors in the UK. I'd love an East Anglian mayor. We could call it something else, but with the power to give this region what it really needs. You've, you've very neatly linked me in uh, to one of my questions, which was about you recently advocated in the Commons um, for uh, local regeneration uh, partnerships. And that was a, a really interesting call. And I, I, I wondered if you could just speak to that, where that might sit in the firmament and uh, what that would do for a place like Watton. Or Deerham, mm. um, just looking at your own constituency. Mm. Yeah, so look, I'm really passionate about this because um, I, I think a big part of the the challenge with um, what the government you know, calls levelling up or, or you call regeneration, but I think everyone knows really what we mean, which is helping those places and the people in them who've been and feel quite disconnected and quite cut off. Like, for example, Watton in my constituency. It's only 40 miles from... Cambridge, if you looked at a map globally, you'd say, well, Watton is, must be booming. I mean, it's, it's 40 minutes from one of the world's fastest growing cities, centres of science and technology. I mean, take me to Watton. It, it must be the most amazing centre of entrepreneurial growth. Well, poor Watton, of course, is very cut off from even the A11. It's even cut off from the 1065, mm. which takes a bit of doing. It's on the edge of everywhere. Uh, it's, it's a bit, you know, left out. Uh, it has a town council of local, um, they wouldn't mind me saying this, they're, they're local civic amateur spokesmen, spokespeople for the town. They're not professional leaders of regeneration. Mm. And uh, I think we have to think somehow, and the, uh, and the government's got to think, look, if the problem is powerlessness and being left behind, um, the big cities... Manchester, Birmingham, with the Metro Mayors, London, they're fine, really. I mean, they need, I would give them more power. And, but the real challenge is how do you help the little cities, the small towns that, by the way, of course, voted heavily for Brexit, partly, I think, because they were feeling very left behind. What's the model 
to allow them to shape their own destiny. And to me, you need, we need to come up with a, a very simple delivery uh, vehicle that would galvanize everyone together into one partnership. And I've called it a local development corporation. It, it could raise money from any government pot. So it can take money from the housing fund, the leveling up fund, the regeneration fund, the recovery fund, all of which at the moment is quite tightly defined. Or you can only use that money for this or that money for that. It's a nightmare. These regeneration corporations would have the freedom to take the money from all of those pots and put them into a single pot. Secondly, I would give them the power to be able to buy up bits of public sector land. A little bit of land here belongs to the MOD and a bit of land here belongs to DFT and a little bit here. Just buy it up at pretty low value to put it into a pot. So now your development corporation, say in Watton, has got, you know, two or three acres of land, bits and pieces it can do things with. I would allow it to buy the land at pre-development value so that if it then develops, it makes a significant capital gain on that land. I would give it the powers to be able to borrow sensibly against the asset, which at the moment is precluded by treasury rules. Uh, and I would give it the power to um, issue shares to both to local people at a discounted rate, but also internationally to attract investors. And I think we could create some really interesting little local regeneration corporations. And they wouldn't have to be just one town. So imagine the Cambridge Norwich Railway Corridor Development Corporation. Mm -hmm. Imagine if the government said, okay, we'll give you the right of compulsory, you, know, you, you can own the land at the stations that currently belongs to Network Rail. Well, that's quite valuable. You've now got eight railway stations. Each has got some land. You, you can have com compulsory purchase power for bits of land around the stations that belong to various quangos that have forgotten they owned it. You can develop them. Uh, now you, you start to, you've created a vehicle that I think, as a former investor, you could raise a billion pounds for that company quite quickly internationally. Then you could start to do some really exciting regeneration. And I think, you know, if the Treasury went for this, we could create lots of local regeneration corporations that, by the way, sort of local business leaders and others who, you know, understandably might not at the moment want to be a councillor would say, well, hang on a minute, that's really, I'd like to do that. I'd like to get involved. And I think we get local businesses again, like we did in Victorian times, involved in local civic leadership. And I think it could be very exciting for towns like Dereham and Wyndham and Watton. Talking about sort of towns and, and in terms of neighbourhood plans, do you think communities have made strong enough use of, of that tool yet? You can get ones that are quite defensive and there are ones that are quite pro with a pro quite progressive vision for their area. Has uh, enough been done on the progressive end of the spectrum, do you think? Another great question. So I was a, a very committed localist in 2010, voted for the Localism Act. I've long felt that this country is overly centralised and... You know, we're the only country in Europe that local government exists at the whim of ministerial diktat. Ministers could abolish local government. I mean, I don't think there are any plans to, but I mean, but they could. Whereas in the rest of Europe, people and America, around the world, people look on with horror and say, well, are you serious? So the county councils and district councils are delivery arms of central government. And the Localism Act tried to change that and to say, no, no, you have a right of competence locally. You can get on and do basically anything that isn't illegal you can do it. 
And I think we've really struggled to kind of locally to turn the telescope round and to think in a very different way. And to be fair to local councils, um, boy, it's been a difficult environment, really, because, of course, after the crash, councils were facing 40% cuts and delivering the same service on a 40% reduction of, of uh, income is no mean feat. And I pay tribute, actually, to the way most people in Norfolk can't see 40% reductions in their services. And most councils are 40% more efficient. Um, there have been cuts. I mean, we shouldn't beat around the bush. Uh, and um, I think people probably feel that after the crash, some of those local cuts, we probably went too far. And, and they're a false economy. You end up paying again. But I think, um, secondly, you know, government um, doesn't make it easy, actually, for local areas to really shape their own destiny. And that's my big ask of government now. Um, in terms of big infrastructure in East Anglia, you know, upgrading the Ipswich and the Norwich links to Cambridge. So they're really fast, 5G, great trains, it regenerate the stations. It's clear to me we'll be waiting 30 years for government to do it. We haven't got 30 years and we could raise the money now and do it. So I think um, whilst it is it is possible to say that the East has sort of slightly struggled to to mobilise and rise to this challenge... I think it's equally fair to say that government hasn't really helped. Um, and on planning, particularly, I think the the planning reforms that were put in after the crash to try and help the housing market have really given the big developers the whip hand. And, you know, the big Persimmon and Hopkins Homes and, um, you know, Barrett and Wimpy and it's, you know, they, they can now run most councils ragged and... I think people want to see housing being built. I think they they would prefer that it was built in something that looks like it might have come from Norfolk or Suffolk or East Anglia or, frankly, you know, even more local, you know, local brick and flint. And the developers are perfectly capable of applying design codes, but we haven't been very good as councils at insisting on them. But those planning reforms have really meant that so many councils have really had to accept development wherever developers want to put it. And I think that's a big problem and it's undermining public trust and confidence in in local government, which is sort of unfair really because it's come from national planning policy. Planning is always a really difficult issue, as we both know, for MPs because you are representing people who already have an asset and a stake in a community. Sometimes... Not always, but sometimes against the interests of those who do not yet have that stake in the community. So basically, yes. the voters of today get prioritised over the voters yes. of tomorrow. How do you do? You think? I mean, some MPs I know don't touch planning at all. Mm. They stay well away. Others, for be- for better or worse, embrace it and really try and get in there and and do the best they can. What's the way forward there for an, mm. for an MP? Because that must be a real head scratcher. It, it's one of the difficult, hardest issues. And I decided at the beginning, everyone said to me, oh, don't get involved in planning. Well, I, I don't think you can seriously put yourself forward as a leader, a representative of your community in this part of the world and not have a view on planning. You know, it's a bit like saying keep politics out of sport. I mean, sport is very important. It's a huge, uh, you know, I mean... 
I'm just not sure it's possible, really, and and or desirable. So the the, the way I've tackled it is to say, listen, you know, somebody's loft extension, garage extension um, is none of my business. That's a local issue for the local councillors, and I just don't get involved. But strategic planning, i.e., you know, what's our vision for Norfolk? What's our vision for East Anglia? And if we're going to put 25,000 houses in this part of the world, where in principle should we be putting them? That I do get very involved in, and I care passionately about it. And I think if we get those decisions right, I think a lot will follow. So, for example, in Wyndham, when the 2,000 houses were coming a few years ago, the developers, of course, wanted to put them uh, to the north of Wyndham on the Norwich Road, quite lazily, just put them on the existing road. Um, No need for any investment in infrastructure, uh, and it'll gradually... take the ribbon development up and Norwich and um, Wyndham eventually merges with Heather, Heather Set and Cossey and Norwich and it becomes an urban sprawl. So I felt very strongly that we need to protect that northern edge of Wyndham. Then they wanted to put, put the housing in the Tiffy Valley. Well, I mean, it's a gem, the Tiffy Valley. It's one of our most beautiful um, pieces of countryside and the wonderful Mid-Norfolk Railway goes through it on its way to Durham and people love it locally for walking. And So I got together with John Fuller, the local council leader and the councillors and we managed to I mean we had to fight uh, in a public inquiry and I had to take on a London barrister and but we got the housing put down by the railway station and I was thinking then we could help to encourage people to use the train more instead of commuting Um, so I think it is important that MPs I just don't think we can not get involved in strategic planning but I think it would be wholly inappropriate if we started deciding you know whether 34 Acacia Avenue can have a you know a loft extension You're right, absolutely, because one thing I found is that you you may not want to get involved, but the people who put an MP in Parliament, they very much want to see their MP be be, be part of that. You made a point about neighbourhood planning, sorry, which I realise I didn't pick up properly. So I'm a huge fan of the neighbourhood planning process. And in my experience, I've got about 10 villages that have done a neighbourhood plan. And... When they, the village comes together and says, look, what would we like for our village? My experience is that, firstly, it's good for the village because it builds community links and, you know, civic uh, act, action. And But normally what, you found, what I've found is that the village develops a vision and says, well, actually, we don't mind having a bit of housing as long as it's sort of this end uh, and linked to a near the bus stop or it's up there it's not where the developer necessarily would like to put it but that would be the best for the village and and by the way then we could if we had a bit of profit from the housing we could you know put some hanging baskets in or a bench or a playground and actually what i find is villages then think long term about their future and it's really good the problem is of course they're in the way the current planning law is framed they're very difficult to properly enforce and one of the things I would do is, um, at the risk of being too too technical, you're aware there's this rule called the five-year land supply. Mm-hmm. So if a council doesn't maintain, basically it's to stop councils just not building at all. So as long as if, if, if councils under the Localism Act have to have a plan for 20 years of what they think their growth is and then keep building towards their own definition of their own growth. And if you are not doing that, i.e. you're not building in accord with your five-year forecast, then basically the developers have the whip hand. Now, of course, in areas that have fallen behind, uh, villages that have got a neighbourhood plan get completely trampled over. And one of the things I would do is just say where that happens, if you've got a neighbourhood plan, it, it survives the process. So you can't, 
uh, developers can't ignore a neighborhood plan. And I think that would help lots of villages to realize that there's a value for thinking about their long-term plan for themselves. To go back to uh, the NRP, the Norwich Research Park briefly, what are you most excited about um, in terms of the future of what's happening there? And what are the challenges you think it most needs to overcome? I mean, in my mind, one of the biggest challenges is its location vis-a-vis the airport and the railway station and international visitors getting off trains and planes going, how do I get there? Most excited about? I think um, where where medicine meets food and where, you know, biomedicine meets um, um, nutritional science. So there's a whole new sector coming called nutraceuticals, functional foods, um, you know, superfoods. Uh, now that we understand the mechanisms through which diseases like cancer and dementia and others work, um, and we know that there are properties in some um, naturally occurring properties in vegetables that are that are really really good for your health. We've now developed the ability uh, to be able to um, using plant breeding technologies to to produce sort of super broccoli and, and super cabbage that has ten times more of that really good ingredient in it. And that's a really exciting sector. And companies like uh, Unilever, Danone some of the international food companies are really starting to invest in health-promoting foods, superfoods. Well, the Norwich Research Park is the world leader in that space with the John Innes, with the Genome Centre, with the Sainsbury Laboratory and the Biomedical Research Campus, the Norfolk and Norwich Hospital. Um, and I, years ago, set up with UCL, their International Institute for Nutrition and um, uh, uh, Digestive Health. And... Norwich is one of the world's great clusters. And that's really exciting because then we could grow those crops here as well. So I think where food, medicine and energy meet, the NRP is, I would give it the edge over Cambridge, which is amazing on deep biological science and IT. But I think we've got here something that speaks more to the global grand challenges of feeding, fueling and healing the, um, the world. Big challenges for the NRP. I think there are two. One is the planning issue of how this extraordinary campus on the clock face of Norwich at sort of eight o'clock on the A47, how does it grow and retain its park feel? You know, science parks, research parks are supposed to be parks. I mean, I used to say when I worked in Cambridge, there's only one science park there, the rest are car parks. You know, a science park is supposed to have trees and green space and be an environment that's conducive to thinking and interaction. And and I think as the NRP grows, the danger is it'll just get packed with buildings. And as it grows, how are all the people that work there going to get into it? Um, and if we're not careful, we'll turn it into another mini Cambridge, um, you know, uh, traffic jam visible from mm-hmm. space. And I think we need to think quite strategically about the Thickthorn Junction, NRP, UEA link, Mm. And that's both, I think, cycling. And I think we ought to think about in 20 years, many more people around Norwich cycling. I'd love Norwich to be the sort of new Amsterdam and and really think about how we could use traffic, keep traffic where it needs to flow freely, use more pedestrianisation and cycling in the inner city space and make the NRP, uh, NRP UEA campus more of a walking and cycling green park. And then there's the question how you link 
up to Durham and down to Wyndham and what the access point is for international investors coming in from Stansted and London. I'd like them to get a fast train from Cambridge. And to me, rather than go to Norwich Station and then get a cab all the way back across town, Wyndham should become the natural gateway to the Norwich-Norfolk Research Triangle. So I think this needs real think- thinking about. And I'd love to see a sort of hydrogen shuttle bus from Wyndham Station to the NRP and um, a, a really nice bike route so that Cambridge scientists can bring their bike up on the train and then cycle. I just think we need to think a bit about creating a really high-quality place to live. Mm. And actually, we could do rather better than Cambridge. You talked about hydrogen, and I know you've been very involved in, and you've certainly asked questions in the House about hydrogen and hydrogen production, and you've got uh, uh, plenty of people have told me about your work with Net Zero. Do you want to just expand on, on, mm. on what you're doing in that sphere? Because it's it's sort of a really exciting time for that technology. Yeah. I mean, I, I sort of came to hydrogen really by accident because um, as somebody who believes that we should be as a country home to these really exciting new technologies, then you slightly have to look around and ask, well, like what? And it's not often that a technology comes along that's so transformational that it it can um, go from sort of zero to a major part of our economy that quickly. And if we're going to seriously tackle climate change and reduce fossil fuel use and move to net zero, then you know, we're going to have to find an energy source for the big heavy vehicles, for the lorries, uh, for the trains, for shipping. You know, shipping is a major contributor to global emissions. Mm. So it's clear to me that, you know, uh, yes, we can do more cycling and we can have electric cars and we can have wind-powered um, national grid. But lorries, trucks from Felixstowe and trains and ships, the, the really big stuff, how are we going to... Pa- fuel them you can't do that with electricity and that's where hydrogen is a very exciting technology and it's designed for that very big uh sector and of course to make green hydrogen because normally it needs quite a lot of electricity to make hydrogen the real dream is to make green hydrogen well how do you make green hydrogen well you would need to have a massive wind farm that when the turbines are blowing at night and you don't need the electricity, you could use it. Well, guess what? We're building the world's biggest wind farm in the Southern North Sea. So ding dong, why don't we then also embrace hydrogen? And we could become a world leader in hydrogen technology, be the place that sets the international standards for hydrogen in uh, in homes. There's a potential to take our gas pipeline, you know, taking gas from the North Sea and pumping it around the country and blend hydrogen with it. And then ultimately it could become a hydrogen network and we're using hydrogen boilers in houses. So there's a huge opportunity as well as hydrogen trains, hydrogen ships. We've got a free port now coming at Felixstowe Harwich. We could really lead the way globally in converting ships from dirty diesel and they're pumping out vast amounts of diesel. I'm a sailor and occasionally on my dinghy bouncing around off the coast, you can see this sort of Los Angeles type pool of smoke and it's come from ships. We could we could have a massive hydrogen maritime hub there. And then, of course, we're going to need to train hydrogen engineers uh, and we could start to create opportunities for people in this part of the world. Uh, and we're a big agricultural sector, huge tractors pouring up and down using diesel. We could lead the way in agri- agricultural vehicle transfer to hydrogen. So I just think it's an opportunity for the UK and for this region. And we'd be nuts not not to grab it. 
in terms of um, energy infrastructure, obviously a lot of homes in this region, uh, probably the majority of homes in this region outside uh, sort of major urban centres, will still be uh, on oil. How do we tackle that? I mean, that seems because uh, when in urban centres they're on a grid. Um, what um, what mechanisms have we got to encourage people on oil-fired boilers to go green? Yeah, greener. It, it's a great question, and and the, you know the the real truth is that we're not going to really achieve net zero in housing by converting every old East Anglian farmhouse to green energy. The way to do it will be to make sure that all these new houses we're building are really clean and green. And one of my concerns is that as we're launching all these net zero targets, we're still building an awful lot of leaky old brick-built houses. uh, And we're not sufficiently gripping the opportunity to make sure that this new generation of housing is really zero. Um, Because then it would be less important whether you've got an old rural windy housing stock that, to be honest, in the same way that you know, people who live down the end of a long rural lane are going to need to use a car long after people in the inner cities have uh, started using a digital mobility pod. You know, rural areas, it's different life out here and we can't punish people for living out in the rural areas and we we need to, you know, recognise that. Um, So I, I don't think we're probably going to be able to convert every traditional part of the rural housing stock to um, completely be rid of fossil fuels. And I think for the, for the older housing stock, it'll be about better insulation, uh, better energy efficiency, better metering. There's an awful lot we can do, you know, little things like not filling the kettle. Um, if you're only making a mug of tea, I know the kettle doesn't feel full, but actually you can save huge amounts of energy. So giving people smart meters, giving them the chance to get a, some money back, Making it easier, creating incentives, I think is the way to achieve a lot of this local energy efficiency. In the Greater Norwich Local Plan that's coming forward, I think they're at Regulation 19 stage as we're talking today, they are kind of, we'll look at new settlements somewhere down the track. You know, we'll probably need to look at that, but it's, it's, it's for the future. Are you confident or are you concerned that when those come forward that any initial scope to make them sort of leaders in green net zero technology might be lost in a, in a sort of a stampede for units. Um, if, yes. Or can we really enshrine that um, opportunity to build a community that we don't need to worry about the vernacular so much and we can look at the energy efficiency and, you know, local biomass, that kind of thing? Uh, yeah, I am worried about that. I think there's a, a danger, particularly post-COVID, that um, uh, so urgent is the need for growth that um, uh, we we sort of carry on building the infrastructure of yesterday's unhealthy and unclean green growth. Um, and actually, if we're going to make COVID a sort of catalyst for more sustainable, healthier, cleaner living, as we talked about at the beginning, then that starts with the build, the built environment today. So I, I, yes, I do think there's a danger of that. Um, and I think the government is is committed to this and, and has made some important plans around green housing and um, lowering the energy emissions of house construction and all. 
But again, it comes back to that earlier point about local leadership, I think, um, and incentives. At the moment, there aren't really tangible incentives in terms of the daily and yearly budgets that most people live on, most organisations run on. You don't get much money back at the moment if you build low energy housing. And, and we need to change that. And, you know, personally, I, I look at this region and think, and this, my constituency, you know, we've got about 30 villages that are all getting very substantial, I would say traumatically high levels of house dumping on the outskirts of the village. I'm not talking 20 houses by the cricket pavilion, you know, which is fine, but we're talking three, 400, 500, 600 houses in a village that's only got 400 um, with no infrastructure. And I think pe what people would much prefer is uh, a new town uh, somewhere sort of on the Cambridge Norwich Railway down on the sort of fenny soil near sort of Lake and Heath Station where the grade one peat is all blown away and it's grade three uh, clay and there's really nothing very much there. There's a little town, there's a railway station and it could be half an hour from Cambridge. Mm. You know, we could build the most fa fabulous 50,000 house new town there. Nobody overlooks it at the moment. It's out in the middle of nowhere. And it would take a lot of traffic off the A11. It would hit our housing numbers. Then we could breathe again. And then we could start to think of housing in the rural areas in a different way, which is uh, to focus a bit more on affordable housing for local lower income employees. So particularly on the coast, you know, where a lot of those North Norfolk tourist towns you can't buy a house now for love nor money for sort of less than two or three or four hundred thousand pounds. And if you're running a local, if you're a local builder or a local fisherman or cleaner, you're not going to be able to afford to buy at that sort of London house rates. And I, I'd like us to be thinking a bit more about making it easier for local parish councils to sort of build a, you know, like the Victorians used to, a sort of gable-ended strip of 10 really lovely brick and flint cottages two or three bedroom they don't have to be expensive uh, for local um, relatively low paid people who are working so they can actually live and work locally and I you know it's been done all around the country by very well led parish councils. so we don't need to reinvent the wheel the model is there and I just think at the moment we're sort of dumping an awful lot of um, identikit sort of Barrett housing everywhere which is undermining the identity of Norfolk. We stick sort of 20% affordable housing in the corner of the housing estate um, for poor families, which it doesn't do them very many favours to be in the corner of a large commuting housing estate. Mm. It's not really tackling the, the local problem of low paid, vital key workers not being able to afford homes. And I just don't think anyone in Whitehall has really got the answer to this. The answer's here in Norfolk. Yeah. And again, if we gave local leaders a bit more power, I think they would, they would find themselves doing it. One of the things we're covering on this show is um, a project to build uh, an earth-encased dwelling uh, in, in your constituency that's net zero. will actually put energy back into the grid. And I want, I, one of my sort of thoughts was that the strategic gap between Heatherset and Wyndham now... If we accept that, unless we're very careful, at some point the gap will close because we won't be able to prevent it. You know, they'll have an expensive QC who will make, you know, and we'll get there. Would it be not better to look at how we close it rather than 
continually trying to stop it closing. I'm yes. not trying to go get you to go somewhere you don't necessarily want to go on this, but it, it, is that something we need to, to look at? Yeah, I think I think you make a good point that, you know, um, simply saying uh, there's a zone here where we don't want any growth isn't really um, enough in a, in a crowded island like Great Britain. I mean, I think towns need edges, uh, but what you do in the edges is really important. And you're right. If what we really need is a vision for this corridor between Norwich, Norwich Research Park, Thickthorn, Cossey, Heatherset, Wyndham. Get it wrong, it'll become an urban sprawl um, with all sorts of unplanned housing estates that begin to sort of bump into each other. And it'll be a sort of concrete jungle in which a generation of children are going to grow up not really knowing whether they're part of the countryside or the city with no proper coherent civic planning. If we get it right, I think it could be a genuinely beautiful part of Norfolk with a lot of walking and cycling. Uh, The cars um, not rat running through all the little villages and um, undermining the beauty of, of the quiet residential areas. And I think you're right that we need a vision for where the green lungs and where the green corridors are in Norfolk. It's not just kind of just stop building a circle around each city. For example, the River Wensum is a beautiful asset in this county, runs east-west, as you know, and mm-hmm. it, not, well, I don't think we've really championed it enough as a beautiful chalk stream. And, you know, I think we could put little cycling routes alongside it, uh, I mean, there are footpaths, but I don't think we promote it enough as a Norfolk asset and cherish it enough. And I, I think cherishing spaces and thinking about what one can do with them is very, very, very powerful. My last question is, and I always try to end each interview with something slightly whimsical. So here goes. Um, I put a lot of thought into this question. As we know, the Houses of Parliament is not the most modern, solid Building. I, I actually um, saw a piece of masonry fall off it last year <laughs> and narrowly missed killing the deputy chief whip. So, yes. Mm. So it's not beyond, um, you know, the, the, it has elevators. And for anyone who doesn't know, on the brass in elevator, it said members only in the event of a division. Um, if you were to be stuck in an elevator on Parliament with one other MP, which MP would you like to be stuck in an elevator with? Ele- an MP from this Parliament? Uh, well, why don't you say this Parliament and then any Parliament? Okay, that's a very interesting question. Um, so, from a previous parliament, I would like to be stuck with Joe Chamberlain, the great radical uh, municipal localist mayor who led the Great Birmingham Revival in the late 19th century, the great philanthropist, the planner. Um, you know, he's, he's the very sort of like iconic model of the kind of approach that I'm setting out, and I would love to talk to radical Joe, as he was known at the time, uh, about what lessons he would give us today from the great municipal construction in Birmingham and everything he did. I mean, in politics, you always, you know, everyone wants time with the Prime Minister. So if I was to find myself in a lift with the Prime Minister, that's time I could really use. (laughs) Um, But I think your question demands something else as well, which is that you know, one of the things about Parliament, which you don't see on the television at all, it looks like a sort of Yarbu red versus blue shouting match, is that one gets to know 
MPs from all around the country and respect and understand their commitment to their place in a way that um, is actually rather special. And I would really like to talk to some of the MPs from uh, from the red wall seats about what's really going on in those areas that have been red forever, you know, 100 years and have suddenly voted Conservative and what it is that people there really want. Um, so I think Dehenna Davidson in City of Durham, and because the 2019 MPs, um, we've hardly seen them because mm. of COVID, because no sooner were they elected than we all got kicked out. <laughs> so actually, this might seem a strange question, but I'd like to be in a lift with the newly elected Conservative MPs from the Northern Labour seats and talk to them about mm. what's really going on up there and how we really got to deliver for people who've given us an opportunity. Well, on that note, what a fantastic note to end on. George Freeman, it's been an absolute delight and a pleasure. Thank you ever so much for joining us on Eastern Promise. Thank you. Likewise, Mike. Thank you very much for having me. It was a great pleasure to speak with George, and I hope you found that as enjoyable and insightful to listen to as it was to record. It was a great pleasure to speak with George, and I hope you found that as enjoyable and insightful an interview to listen to as it was to record. From me, Mike Rigby at Eastern Promise, and a very happy new year. <laughs>